Hi everyone, so today we have here with us Dr. Laura Kipnis, who is a cultural theorist slash critic and former video artist. She's the author of six books, including the more recent one in which we, we will focus on today, uh, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus. She's also, uh, she also wrote several essays and reviews published in Slate, The National Critical Inquiry, Social Text, Wide Angle, The Village Voice, Harper's, and The New York Times Magazine. Her books and essays have been translated into 15 languages. So, okay, uh, I decided to invite Dr. Kipnis to talk a little bit about the importance of Title IX, particularly in university campuses in the U.S., uh, and to talk about the situation she described in her book, Unwanted Advances, with her colleague at her university, Peter Ludlow, and herself. So, to start off with, in the U.S., as far as I understand it, you have a piece of legis legislation called Title IX, which is applied in educational institutions to try to promote uh, equality in terms of gender, in terms of sexual orientation for the races, and so on and so forth. Could you please tell us a little bit what it consists of exactly and the importance of it for the case? Yeah, I should start off by saying that its status as legislation is in question because a lot of what's being dictated now was never actually part of the original statute and it wasn't ever voted on or passed. So that's part of the debate about it. But it originally was um, this act of Congress, I believe, to promote gender equality, like say equality in funding in women's sports. And then it was expanded uh, sort of in a, a kind of unilateral move in 2011 by people in the Department of Education who decided that the uh, that Title IX should also include uh, redress for sexual misconduct. But the way that this, uh, it was called the Dear Colleague Letter, these instructions were issued to universities in the form of this letter that have been very controversial because there was no oversight. It was this kind of unilateral action by this department within the Department of Education called the Office for Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of mandated that universities and colleges around the country um, step up the ways that they were dealing with sexual assault. And it dictated the standard of evidence that would be used. And this would be mostly case where students were accusing other students of sexual assault. And it, the, the Dear Colleague letter dictated that the lowest standard of proof would, to be, would be used, which is preponderance of evidence, which is basically 50-50 plus a feather. Uh, and, and various other, you know, not to get too far into the, the minutia of this, but so campuses were faced with uh, responding to this, this instruction letter uh, and threaten that if they didn't, they would lose federal funding, which is a huge amount of money for a lot of campuses, a big percentage of their budget. So they all kind of went into overdrive, you know, to comply and over-comply with the terms of this uh, Dear Colleague letter. So the result is um, these kind of secret tribunals on campuses around the country that are handling accusations of 
sexual misconduct. What sexual misconduct can mean can be almost anything. So, for example, the reason I got caught up in this was that I was accused of, you know, sexual harassment or, or creating a hostile climate on campus because I wrote an essay about um, the sexual politics on campus at the moment. And this was a couple of years ago. I wrote an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I talked about an increasing tenor of paranoia on American campuses around sex. And I got brought up on Title IX complaints for having written this essay. And so um, then, just to sort of bring us up to, somewhat up to date, I then wrote a second essay about having been brought up on Title IX complaints. And I went through a 72-day process and, you know, a kind of closed-door secret tribunal. So I got some experience. And I wrote about this experience. And um, then I got letters from people all over the country, both professors and students, who had been through these similar sorts of tribunals with all, in all sorts of different things that they were accused of and all sorts of different processes. So I started collecting a lot of information you know, by default about what was going on around the country, which is really very secret because nobody is, nobody feels that they're allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So right. th that, that's a sort of bit of a background. Yeah, okay. So, and in your book, you focus a lot on the case uh, that your colleague went through, Peter Ludlow, right? Uh, and he was accused of sexual misconduct with a female student, right? Could you talk a little bit about that situation? Yeah, well, there were two students who had accused him of different kinds of misconduct, um, uh, an undergrad and a graduate student. And I say in the book that, uh, you know, the investigations, which is what I was focused on, were very um, haphazard. And part of the problem with these situations is that you have what we call the single investigator model in a lot of these situations. We have one person kind of doing an investigation and then pronouncing on the evidence. And it's not really a process designed in a very efficient manner to, to get at the truth. So partly what happened was that I got access to all of the documents in his case and was able to read through these reports and see the basis on which these were two different Title IX officers had made the sort of findings that they made. And I found it very shocking. I thought that there was this huge amount of gender bias. Um, I thought that they ignored the kinds of evidence that was uh, uh, contradicted the conclusions that they seemed to be wanting to come to. So um, I wrote about that and, you know, tried to do a kind of almost forensic analysis of the Title IX process since I had access to, to these documents. Mm -hmm. And your colleague w w ended up being sanctioned by the university. Does he still work there? Oh, no, no. He, well, he ended up resigning uh, because he thought he was going to be fired. I was asked to be his faculty support person at uh, his dismissal hearing. And he got about, I don't know, halfway through the dismissal hearing and he just thought he, he thought he was going to be fired and also he was being bankrupted because he was paying for lawyers to defend him or help him defend himself in the case. 
So uh, once I think, I think his feeling was that once it got to the point of a dismissal hearing, there was no way they were going to find him not guilty. Uh, so, so he decided to resign rather than be fired. Mm -hmm. And since you wrote and published your book last year and all the interviews you gave and so on, uh, how are things going now at your university? Did you notice any significant changes, any improvements on this matter since that, since that time? Um, the part of the thing that, as you know, has happened in the United States is we've, we have a new president um, and a new secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, and so partly it seems like what she's trying to do is dial back some of the uh, provisions that were put in place by the Obama administration. And this has been very controversial. You know, I think a lot of people are not particularly admiring of her approach to education to begin with. I'm in a sort of mixed, difficult position about this because I, you know, loathe everything that the Trump administration stands for. I also think that the Department of Education under the Obama administration uh, was responsible for this incredible amount of overreach. In any case, I don't think anything is going to change on campus, and I don't think anything has changed on campus. DeVos has, has announced that um, you know there are going to be these uh, revisions of the previous guidelines. But most campuses have announced, or an awful lot of campuses in the U.S. have announced that they continue, they will, they plan to continue to stick to the Obama era guidance, including the preponderance of evidence standard. So, you know, there's just a huge amount of unfairness in these processes. So basically, to, as far as what I know about, in many, many cases in the U.S., if somebody is accused of something, and usually with students, what this means is there has been drunken sex. You know, most of what the accusations derive from is situations where two people who knew each other had sex while drunk, and then somebody complains. Usually it's the woman uh, complains about that afterward. And then you've got an investigation uh, and Typically, if two students are drunk in a heterosexual situation, the guy is going to be found responsible. Uh, uh, so, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this has a lot to do with creating these pieces of legislation and other things that happen on campus and so on uh, that uh, tr treat adult people like the students are uh, and infantilize them a bit, right? Because, uh, I mean, uh, now with these pieces of legislation, uh, if people decide to have, for example, sexual, relation, uh, sexual relationship or sexual affairs with a professor or even with other colleagues uh, and so on, uh, and then later they regret it, uh, they can press charges against them, right? I mean, that's essentially what I had argued, uh, you know, argued in the book and argued in the first essay that I wrote. Look, I mean, 
I'm all for addressing sexual assault. I mean, we you know need to acknowledge that there's been an issue with sexual assault, and campuses have been uh, remiss in not having in the past. I think what's happened now is the what is defined as sexual assault has been ex expanded and expanded. And yes, people can change their minds well after the events in question. Uh, so, and also what's considered sexual misconduct is being expanded. So all of this, you know, I use the term paranoia. There's a certain amount of sexual paranoia. And, you know, and I was also writing as a feminist and arguing that this is not um, very advantageous from the standpoint of feminism. Mm -hmm. Right, because before feminism was about uh, liberating women in all aspects, including the sexual one, and, and now it seems that we're kind of patronizing women, right? Uh, since you're a feminist, could you give us a bit more of a perspective on that, what was feminism originally and what it is now? <laughs> well, that's a rather big assignment that I don't think I can take okay. on. Um, I mean, I, you know, that, yeah, certainly the idea of, of, of autonomy and sexual um, agency and decision-making and treating women as adults as opposed to some kind of page, including the auspices of the university. I mean, yeah, sure, all of those would have been goals of second wave feminism. Um, so, you know, I do think that the problem is that women are not being treated in the same way that men are and not regarding themselves, uh, you know, and also wanting equality in, in other realms. And I mean, I, I think that there are issues in terms of sexual assault and rape that mean that women are situated differently than men. I mean, um, you know, that get into a complicated set of questions here. But I mean, there are, you know, realities about um, women's uh, being assaulted in, in sexual situations. But I think what you see if you start looking into you start looking to the research and the statistics on campus that the the kinds of things that are happening and being called assault are not sex against not sex in which physical force is used so the traditional definition of rape or sexual assault is a situation where someone is overpowered physically so that's not what's happening in the vast majority of these situations What's happening is more situations where, like, say, the accusation is that the guy, because it usually is heterosexual situations, and it's a male who's accused, say he's not taking no for an answer, or he's being overly persuasive, or the woman is too drunk to consent. So they're they're more ambiguous. The situations are more ambiguous than a situation where some, where physical force is used. So part of the question becomes. Why is it that particularly younger women, students, don't feel that they have the power in those situations to do what they want sexually? So, you know, those are some of the questions that I think need to be asked and aren't being asked. Um, we're putting all the focus on, on the male sexual behavior, but I also think we need to be honest about women's 
the sort of psychological propensities that lead women to feel that they uh, don't have agency in those situations, um, the ways in which regret functions or, you know, someone changing her mind, usually it's a woman, uh, about consent after the fact. So I just want to ask a wider range of questions about these situations. Mm -hmm. Right. So just before we finish and to end up with some final remarks, uh, since you're a feminist, I guess that you're all for liberty of choice for women, uh, but you also think that uh, <clears throat> when people have, the liber have liberties, they also have to take responsibilities for the choices they make. And the problem with what's been happening on campus and with Title IX and so on is that we are kind of patronizing uh, we young women in this case uh, and we're allowing people to prosecute other people based on things that don't really make sense uh, and perhaps people don't deserve to, uh, to have that upon them without going through the process, at least, right? That's a good summary. <laughs> is that a fair I assessment? I think it's a fairly accurate, pretty fair, thank you. That's good, that's better than I could do. The one thing I would add to that is that I really have tried to stay away as much as I can from this propensity that a lot of critics want to have, which is to blame individual students or to bash students. Because I think that if the students are feeling they don't have the, particularly women students, have the capacity in these situations to do what they want, I, then I think we're failing to educate them sufficiently. And so the focus, you know, if I were running the world, I would like to see the focus on education and kind of realistic ways of educating students to deal with these situations, as opposed to the, the way it's veered toward punishment. And, you know, we need less punishment on campus and, and more education, but, you know, in an honest, realistic way where we're really talking about the drinking, uh, the sense of, I mean, the context, which is hookup culture and what people feel like they're going to get out of these situations. So, you know, have honest, realistic discussions as opposed to just say, oh, you stupid girls, you're, you know, you're being silly, you know, so that's the wrong discussion to have. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. So I would like to thank you a lot, Dr. Laura Kipnis, for accepting my invitation and for being here with us today. And I hope you keep up with the good work and, and that things in America improve a little bit in terms of what's been happening on campus and so on, because it's really, it's really unfair for people and particularly for <laughs> Thank you. you for Sorry? Thank you. Uh, thank you for the good... I said Thank you for those good wishes. Oh, okay. Uh, and again, thank you for being here with us today and take care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.